How is everybody doing? And welcome back for another Strength Chat episode. Today, I've got a very special guest for you all. Some may say the king of the deadlift, pulling a mind-blowing <laughs> 487.5 kilos at the American Pro this year. Today, I'm joined by the one and only Danny Grigsby. How are you doing? I'm doing great, bro. Thanks for having me on. I always like talking about anything, honestly. I mean, this kind of stuff's fun to me, you know, just to talk to like-minded people and just, you know, learn more about each other or whatever the topic may be. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, thanks a lot for for taking uh, taking the time to jump on. I know we were chatting a little bit a little bit beforehand, but how are you? What, what's been happening in your world recently? Uh, not much. I've been deep in the off-season, so training's kind of been very, you know how it is, like, very monotonous, but it's you want it's what you need to do. I've just been focused on my job. For those that don't know, I'm in the United States Marine Corps. I've been in seven years. I'm gonna get out next about a year from now, next October. But I'm on the funeral detail team. So I go to a, it's called Arlington National Cemetery in the US. It's one of the more prestigious military cemeteries. So I do casket and cremation funerals there for uh, past Marines and their family members. So it's a good a good gig you know you give back in a great way and it's very fulfilling so. yeah oh nice and and especially i know you've, you've touched on it a little bit there but you know we we see i am um, the, the the lifts that you pull and you, you've mentioned a little bit of background to yourself there obviously being in the being in the marines um just want to give anyone listening who might not know your background how you got involved in strength training and powerlifting. uh just want to give a little bit of a, a background to yourself yeah definitely i'd love to do that so I would, I technically started powerlifting in 2013, so it's nine going on 10 years now. Um, growing up, I did football, basketball, baseball, and track and field. I did all those for probably six to eight years apiece in different early on and then late in my childhood. I did up to a year of college football, so I stopped football at 19. And then for six, eight months, I was just working out, just kind of no specific type of training, kind of like bro training. And then there was a powerlifting meet at the, the gym I was at, so I just did it for fun. No real expectation. I got hooked on it from there because it was just – I've always been used to doing an athletic endeavor of some sort most of my life, so it was a good way to still be competitive after realizing football wasn't for me anymore. So and I've been doing it ever since. I mean, so 2013 is when I started powerlifting. I joined the Marines late 2015, so I've been doing it ever since then. It's hard to juggle sometimes because this is the most common thing I get is how do people juggle both? And to an extent, you're going to have to compromise because if you're doing if you're doing extreme amounts of endurance training, for years I didn't really improve because at one of the units I was at, we'd run 10, 12 miles a week. So wow. to think you can you can improve in the beginning if you're just getting into it, but like once you're at an intermediate advanced level, trying to increase your squat and deadlift when you're running like two, three miles a day. Yeah, that wasn't happening. <laughs> but yeah. luckily, I'm in a better I'm in a better situation now. I'm, since I'm with uh, I'm actually a water fil filtration specialist. That's my actual MOS. Yeah. But since 2020, I've been in Washington D.C. and I'm. It's kind of like a temporary billet. I'm with the the body bear, so we don't run as much here because we got to be bigger <laughs> to carry caskets. Thank God. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool! And with that, obviously having your your first uh, uh first competition in in two thousand and thirteen, was there a point where sort of in your progression, you know, getting to that you know intermediate and like 
you know, the advanced elite level that, that, that you're at now? Was there, was there a turning point where, you know, you, you took it maybe a little bit more seriously or, you know, the, the change in mindset towards it? Because, you know, it sounds as though catching the powerlifting bug, you still, you still enjoy it. But was there a point where there was maybe a transition where it's like, oh, no, actually, I need to take it a little bit more seriously, if you like? Yeah, I think probably I – I might mix the year up. I think it was around 2019 because that, at that time, at that time I was squatting, squatting low 700s. I was benching like 360 and deadlifting like low to mid eights. And up to that point, I kind of was just – Lifting by feel, not really – I would have programs, but I wouldn't do a lot of stuff on it. But once I got – after that, I was like, well, I realized I was going to have to put in more work, be more structured if I wanted to improve. So I'd say from 2019 going into 2020, that's when I really stepped it up. And a lot of it, too, was the changing in my surroundings, like I said, going from not having to run as much, which in turn improved my recovery, and – uh and just trying to figure out more, especially bench, because for years, I'm not going to lie, I just was like, fuck bench, you know, who, no one's going to care because of my deadlift, but then, but then especially the last two years, I'm getting really competitive in the total, so I was like, man, I gotta, I'm not going to be the best at bench, but I gotta be, at least, I gotta be on par with everyone, so that by the time I go into deads, I'm not dealing with a two, three hundred pound deficit from a subtotal, you know, so that was definitely the turning point for me, and you know, every, I've been, my goal is always to be more gradual. So it's good to have great, it's good to have, you know what they say, grand goals, but it's like every meet periodically, I'm trying to add, you know, between two and five kilos to my squat and two to two to three kilos to my bench. Realistically, some meets it's been more, but I'd rather, even if I have more in the tank, you know, presumably I'd rather do that. So then it's like, you have momentum, you've improved, but you know, you already know going into the off season, you have, you have a good starting point because you didn't, you didn't go all out at the meet, you know, because uh, let's say I go all out and everything. Well, it's going to take a lot more to get stronger in that in that sense than if I just and I don't want to say conservative. Like I still hit PRs, yeah. but they probably I had I had a little in the tank. But in a full meet, you can't, especially since deadlift's my best lift. It's like people always say, oh, you like at my last meet, I squatted 770. And people are like, oh, you could have done you could have done like 804 on squat. And I was like, maybe, but like that extra fatigue is it really what like me getting an extra 10 12 kilos on squat if it were to completely wreck me going into deads where I, obviously that makes up way more of my total so it's like a fine line i mean i've noticed if you're a great if you're a great squatter then obviously you push squat because that's your money maker right yeah. so it's all dependent on the type of lifter you are i ideally we want to be above average or elite in all of them but unfortunately it's just very few people are like that so I've kind of learned, okay, I'm a good deadlifter. My bench is getting up there. I did 459. Next beat, I want like 470-ish. And then I feel like I'm above average squatter. And I tell people this, like, oh, you're really good. But, like, people who don't know powerlifting, they don't understand, the, like, the standards, you know? Because to an average person, you know, that's – 700 pound squat's great, but competing at 275, I mean, a, a lot of guys are squatting over 800 now. So, you know, to try to just be on par, I got to be pushing 800. That's yeah. definitely my goal right now. Yeah. And I think I think that's a that's a good point because you know if you're just pushing every lift all the time, especially you know on competition day, you're doing all three that you know de deadlifts at the end, you're gonna be fatigued from there. In terms of your sort of um 
influences on your on your training or people that you've learned from or you go to advice because obviously you know the the level that you compete at people think oh right so who do you learn from or you know um, ask for advice who have been kind of your influences throughout your training and lifting uh well it's kind of different now because now a lot of times people they love to reach out on social media but back then like 2013 to 2017 I never personally reached out to me, but the people I would like, I guess, get motivation from were obviously Dan Green. You know, it's like every five years, a new set of like, I don't know, lifters kind of recycle. So half the people probably don't even know who Dan Green is, but Dan Green, obviously, because he was like one of the bigger Americans during that time. I like Chris Duffin too, because uh, I'm from Oregon. So, and Chris Duffin's also from Oregon. So he was the, he was the most legit powerlifter from Oregon. And back even till now, Oregon doesn't have a huge powerlifting uh, – how do I say it? Like, I've been – I lived in California for a few years, and now on the East Coast, both those both those places, you get you can find meets multiple times a, a month, you know. Right. There's a lot of great powerlifters in one space. But in Oregon, it's not like that. I mean, there's a few guys, you know, who are kind of up there. So, Chris Duff was kind of motivation because he was a Northwest guy, and I wanted to be the next great – this was before I joined the Marines, but I wanted to be the next great powerlifter in the Northwest, Oregon, Washington. And uh, other than that, it was kind of just, I'd say those two guys. And then obviously all the people I trained with and coached with, it's kind of like I take little things from everybody I've trained with and met. You know, if if I've seen someone train a certain way, I'll like think about it, maybe experiment. Like I've tried, for instance, I deadlift once a week currently. I bench twice a week and I squat once a week. I've squatted twice a week, bench three times a week. Try deadlifting twice a week, and that was probably the worst experiment for me, at least. Because <laughs> I think if you're gonna do something like that, you have to start off very small and gradual. Because yeah. I'm already at a high level on deadlifts, so imp- implementing a second day, even at lightweights, me still doing five, six hundred, six fifty, that's still. And I don't think I need that because you know use a lot of the same muscles in squat. And uh, for three months, I did conventional in the off season, so I mixed it mm-hmm. up in that way. And now I'm starting to transition back to sumo because I have a meet in March I'm going to do. So I'm about five, six weeks from prep. So just getting back to the hang of sumo. But, yeah, you know, everybody's different with – I think ultimately it's a part of, obviously, how you train, your genetics. Because I'm in the firm belief, you know, like, if you're more fast twitch, I feel like I'm very fast twitch. Like, everything I do, like, even when I do accessories, I want to be very aggressive. I want to be – it's more – it's more natural to me to be explosive. Like if I yeah. try to slow something down, it just feels very, now I've learned to do that because I don't want to, I'd rather do moderate weight and feel like feel the muscle, my muscle yeah. connection than do twice as much weight and just like be, ex- I mean, you want to be explosive in certain aspects, but you don't need to do everything. I don't think you need to do everything very explosive. Yeah. So yeah, it's a whole, it's crazy. Cause you, you can see so many points of view throughout social media. And nobody's really wrong if you want to argue that. It's all, it's all based on the individual and what their, what your, what your specific needs might be for training volume and frequency and whatnot. Yeah, definitely. It's got to be based on what on what's going to work for you. On a on a little bit of a tangent, how much is there? Um, is there how much of a difference is there between your conventional and your and your sumo? How do you find or how have you found swapping between the two? Um. So. The heaviest I went conventional during my little block was 816. I think if I were to do it during a meat prep, I, I could get over nine. I'd probably say 900. I mean, that's 
people still think I would be oppressive, you know, but like, I mean, it's just, you got to understand like the last two years it's becoming, it's becoming like a meme to make fun of sumo. Right. Because it's just, it's like a, tr it's a trend and people know if they, if they make some stupid meme about sumo, they know it's going to blow up. They're going to get likes and traction. So every time there's a trend, anybody will just hop on it. Cause they know, Hey, if I want to get exposure, everyone's, everyone's posting about this. So I'll just post about it too. But obviously, I mean, no shit, right? Of course I'm better. So like people tell me sometimes they're like, Oh, so you're better. So I'm like, no shit. I'm better. Sumo. It's like in powerlifting, you're going to do the one you're better at because you don't get, I mean, if I got brownie points for doing conventional, maybe I'll do conventional, but that's never, it's never been how it is. But it's just a lot of those people don't compete or they don't understand just how powerlifting works. I mean, yeah, I mean, I pulled 1070 and on a great day, if I trained it for like six months, I could probably get low 900s conventional, which to me would still be pretty good because I never even thought I'd do that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just a constant – and then, you know, people like Jamal. Jamal's so close. It's crazy. He mm. can conventional 950 and pull 1,000 sumo. But I think a big part of that is because he's – his stance is closer. And it's not the same thing, but, like, when your stance is closer, it's a lot more similar conventional, you know? So, yeah. like, it's not a drastic difference to him, I feel, when he does bold. It's just like he even said, like, the reason he doesn't do conventional at full meet is because if you're low bar and benching – your back's already going to be fried or fatigued in some way. So doing conventional where you're slightly more over the bar, I mean, you're more, you're more likely to get smoked. And that's why I feel, at least in the past, a lot of the great conventional deadlifters were, they would do it at deadlift only because doing it in a full meet is like, my first few meets, I did conventional the first two, three years I powerlifted. And yeah, that's, that's why I remember most is how, how destroyed my back would be doing squat bench and then conventional. Like it's just a lot to, try to handle all at once yeah. everybody's that, different i mean you know so yeah yeah definitely i, I was just going to say on there i think for especially for a lot of people listening who might be getting in there first or i've got a couple of powerlifting competitions un underneath the belt i think that comes with experience you know being able to get those strategies in place for competition day and realizing you know when to push and what and you know the blocks of training to do from there Obviously, with, with your deadlift as well and, and the recovery side of things, obviously being in a position now where, you know, not, not running as much, how sort of, how do you balance um, uh, your training and your, uh, and your recovery? Because especially, you know, the, the weights for, for your deadlift, you know, take it, must take it out of you. How do you balance your recovery? What are kind of your strategies or go-tos? Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. So I'll kind of dive into it from multiple perspectives. So, the biggest thing I've learned too, and I kind of learned this last prep somewhat is like, I have a tendency to not push squat. I, I tend to wait a little too late to try to push squat to prep for a meet because it's really tough. Cause once I start, it's almost like I have to alternate weeks because if I'm going to do a heavier week, whether weight or heavier frequency or volume on deadlift, trying to, trying to match that with an equally heavy squat, it just, I've made it work sometimes, but that's a big part of recovery is knowing, okay, this week, if I'm dealt in this, I might do a variation of squat or I might lessen the weight and get the stimulus another way. But it's really hard to push both at the same time, in my opinion. Some people, like I said, can make – some people don't have a problem, but that's one thing I've come across. And then recovery, one thing I got recently a few months ago, I wish I would have had this last prep, was I got a CPAP. So, uh, you know, I have a bigger neck, and I think I'm – I'm normally low 260s now, 
well, I get to over 270 when I have to make 308, but you know, everyone is different, but like my sleep doctor said, she said, once you're a 17 or 18 inch neck, that's when you could be susceptible to sleep apnea. Right. And, uh, that's been, that's helped me a lot. Now, obviously I'm not, I'll really figure out how much it helps me when I start pushing maximal weights again. I haven't done that since the meet, but CPAP, and you don't even need to be big, they told me, because depending on like your jaw, your jaw structure and, and how your throat's form, you could be like sub 200 pounds and you could arguably still need a CPAP. So it's right. not just about, because I thought it was, fa- I thought it was, oh, if you were morbidly obese, because that's, yeah. that's, you always see fat people wearing them or big straw man, but like, yeah, CPAP, because the way they told me, and it's like, they joke, they're like people like you, you know, with, I, I have mild sleep apnea. I don't have severe, luckily. Because severe sleep apnea, you can die from that. Because it's right. like when you're when you're storing bad enough, or I, I love sleeping on my back, but without a CPAP, it's like I'm choking myself. And the more oxygen, more oxygen you get deprived in your sleep, it's just less oxygen that's going to your brain. So over time, that can cause, besides being groggy and not being alert, over time that can be fatal to functions of your brain. Yeah. So yeah, it's huge. That's that's been huge for me. And then normally, at, at our uh, Marine unit here, we have Normatec, kind of the inflatable uh, oh, the yeah. leg and arm. Well, yeah, those those are expensive. I mean, if you want to get a kit of those, it's like eight nine hundred bucks American. So that's that's kind of a. So if you could find a place for that, I've never really done a lot of cold cold bass. I'm not gonna lie, I'm kind of a bitch when it comes to that. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I would be down to do it, but it's just like, uh, like. You know, who, who wants you, – you've seen Thor jump in the cold bass in Iceland, mm-hmm. and I'm just like, dude, I don't know, man. That seems seems pretty crazy. And then cryotherapy, I've tried that once. That was pretty – that was a unique experience. Once again, a lot of these things you don't really – it could just be placebo. You know, who knows if it truly works, but if you believe it works, it's going to work to some extent. Um, Absolutely. But, yeah, yeah. And one last thing is uh, I just got a – it's called body tempering in the – Chris Duff and his Kabuki strength brand, they have body tempering wheels. So it's like, uh, it's basically like an object. It's a roller made out of like, not steel, but they're like 50 to 60 pounds and you can, they have sleeves inside. So you can put more weight inside. And I've been using it to roll out my legs and back. Cause once, once you have enough muscle and you're big enough, just, just rolling on a foam roller isn't really going to do much for you. I still use a foam roller to warm up and kind of open up slightly. But when I'm really beat up, and then there's massage therapy, but I like I like just having someone roll. I load it up to like a hundred pounds and having someone dig into my legs and other areas. Yeah. yeah, I think for that it's the especially the 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 kit that um, Kabuki Kabuki do is is really good and he's a little bit more specific, obviously to the to the strength stuff because, like you say, at a certain point, you know, foam rollers aren't gonna aren't gonna aren't gonna do as much. And it's interesting, you know, you mentioned a couple of those recovery strategies like the sound. Um, you know, big and big and fancy, but you know, it could just be a placebo. If you, you do something else like stretching or or whatever else, if you feel better after it, I think that's the main thing. Just touching on the on the sleep side of things, because I did I didn't know all that what you what what, what you were mentioning there. Is that something that's been a relatively new thing that you've that you've done? What kind of made you go and go go and look at that? I think probably I'd say the last last year, year and a half, I've noticed a depreciation in my sleep quality and I kept, you know, brushing it off to maybe stress from my job. I don't know, anxiety, anxiety, stuff like that. But it just became so prevalent no matter what I did. You know, I pound equal. I try to go to bed earlier and it didn't matter. 
Um, it didn't matter. I just wake up feeling groggy. And then I had a friend, a, a Marine Corps friend who also, he had a CPAP and he told me how it helped him. So I thought, okay, I'll just go do a sleep study. And for those who don't know a sleep study, you stay overnight at a hospital. They hook like, they hook up like 30, 40 different wires for your head, like over oh, your my. body. Yeah. It's, it's almost, the joke is like, you would probably fail this test regardless if you had sleep apnea or not. Cause who's, who's going to comfortably go to sleep when you have like <laughs> wires literally covered in your body. But yeah, but, and it came back and obviously I knew, I knew going in, I would at least snored, but they said it's like 12 or 14 times an hour. I lose my, I like lose my breath and choke. So that's obviously a big enough deal to where now the problem is it took three to four months because military, it can take a while to get things. Yeah. But yeah. Having, CPAP, it took a few weeks to get used to having a mask. I mean, it's at first it's so uncomfortable. And even sometimes in my sleep, I'll wake up, you know, at 2, 3 a.m. And then I'll take it off subconsciously because I'm almost half asleep. Yeah. And it's like when you wake up and kind of lose your breath for a second, it just kind of makes me disoriented. So then I then I unknowingly kind of take it off and go back to sleep. And I'll wake up and the mask isn't even on me. And I'll be like, oh, damn it. Like, <laughs> so, but even if I only have it on a few hours a night, that's still a few hours I'm getting proper oxygen, you know, not losing, losing my breath. Yeah. I'm hoping that, cause I really think that once you're getting to your maximal potential, stuff like that really, I'm not saying it wouldn't matter regardless, but a CPAP, I mean, especially for an a, a athlete who's bigger or just, Oh, and another thing too, is like when I did the CPAP, it lowered my blood pressure because that's another thing I forgot to mention earlier. Like if you're constantly losing it, losing oxygen in your sleep that's going to increase your blood pressure because obviously when you think about having an accrued debt of oxygen that'll for various reasons that's going to raise your blood pressure so i'm starting to get relative not horrible but like 120 130 over 60 70 i don't remember the exact numbers but still though you don't want to wait till it gets in the gets really bad to try to address it yeah so yeah that's something that really blew my mind i'm like wow my blood pressure it went down considerably ever since I've gotten a CPAP. And you notice it too, because you breathe better. You don't, you don't lose your breath going up a flight of stairs as much. You know? <laughs> so you've, you've noticed a, a, a sort of a, a noticeable difference then in, in, in recovery with, with that. Yeah. Just health and overall well being. Like I said, even if I wasn't working out, just like I said, just the, the better mental clarity. I mean, and when you're, when you're groggy and just kind of dragging your feet all the time, how productive, how productive are you really going to be throughout a day? You know, you're just kind of like living like before I got a CPAP, it was almost like I was just kind of like a zombie. And once I, once I got off work or once I had the opportunity, I just napped for an hour just to try to, just to try to do something to try to keep me going. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't go four or six hours after I woke up without taking a nap either, uh-huh. either in a vehicle. Now I never got so bad where I was like falling asleep at the wheel. Yeah. But it's like when you can't even function for more than six, eight hours without needing to take a nap, like that's probably a sign you need some, yeah. you need some help. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of a nap, but um, maybe just more out of, uh, of laziness rather than, uh, rather than anything else. Um, with yeah. that, because obviously um, in terms of, you know, getting your uh, training in and, you know, being in the, the military and the, and the routine routine with it as well, how do you kind of, you know, manage your um uh, your nutrition around that and getting your getting your training in. Do you kind of have to be adaptable with that, or 
do you kind of have still try and stick to stick to certain times with that? Yeah, that's that's one of the things that kind of sucks, you know, because sometimes, I mean, in military, you can have a set schedule, but then it can it can flick, fix and fluctuate at various moments. So I, as of right now, I mean, I've always kind of done this in various ways, but I'm doing the vertical diet. I mean, for years, I've eaten predominantly red meat and rice, but the vertical diet is kind of a spin, a few extra bells and whistles with that. So just, you know, veggies is mainly spinach, bell pepper and, and carrots in the vertical diet. There's other options, but they give you options to what to stick to. And then and then for breakfast, I eat a couple whole eggs, liquid egg whites, uh, rice, spinach. And then uh, so the various things like orange juice throughout the day and cranberry juice is helping you get uh, potassium and magnesium. Because what Stan Efferding told me was that's a good way to manage blood pressure as well is like salt is not the enemy. It's just that a lot of things that are high in salt, you know, are uh, fried, you know, super pro- – obviously, if something's fried and super processed, it's already bad for you. It's just the icing on the cake is it has a fuck ton of salt in it. But there's been studies, I mean, up to like 8 to 10 grams of salt have been administered to people. But with a proper diet, I mean, it's, that alone isn't going to blow your blood pressure through the roof. But having – and it's through supplementation as well, but having your potassium and magnesium in a – taking enough of those naturally as well that's also help with blood pressure so the vertical diet is pretty easy to follow it's not really a strict diet per se because like i said i love red meat i've never had a problem any kind of red meat you know it could be uh venison steak most of the time i eat ground beef like 85 90 percent lean um you know it's it's one of those things where you're kind of following those nutrient gra- gaps you need as an athlete but not super strict. And sometimes I can't follow the diet. I'll have a, I have like a meal replacement, you know, like I said, that's not ideal, but sometimes once a day I'll have to like, you know, go for a shake a meal. Most of the time, I'm not a mass gainer. Cause I don't like mass gainers. Cause they have a, they have a ton of carbs, but it's usually like 20 to 30 grams of protein for three, four scoops. Yeah. So then you got to add peanut butter or other alternatives just to like get enough protein from a, from a mass gainer. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I was uh, I was lucky enough to 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 speak to uh, Stan Efferding on the podcast, and he, he explained really well about the about the vertical diet. I think you know everyone thinks, especially when you say diet, it's got to be really strict, and there's no there's no flexibility. Whereas actually, especially reading the book as well, there's quite a couple of options in there, which is which is helpful. I think um, rather than feeling as though you have to be you you've, you've got to be really strict. Um, Obviously, at the start, I mentioned about your um your deadlift at the at the American Pro. Um, kind of wanted to 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 touch on that. Um, how how was kind of the prep heading into that competition? How was the day? How was what was what was that like? Have things settled down from there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was kind of an interesting prep. So I don't know. I, everybody, you always want that prep where everything goes right, but that's just there's always something that I mean. Maybe one day there'll be a prep where it's like you don't tweak something, you're just confident the whole time. But the reality is throughout prep, you know, you're going to have points when you doubt yourself, at least in my opinion. But then it's your ability to overcome the adversity or to subjectively see why. That's the thing that I've improved on most is not – I'm not fretting about a horrible workout, right? Like if I shit the bed on deads or squat, miss my top set, or I just underperformed, I just – Think about all the factors that led up to that, right? Maybe a lack of sleep, nutrition wasn't on point, hydration. 
Um, and during this prep, it started off really great. I mean, the first six weeks of prep were great. I was put, doing a, obviously starting out with some frequency. I was hitting rep PRs. I mean, on deadlift, especially I did, man, it was 880 for, I did 400 kilos for four or five reps. It was four or five reps. I don't remember. Four or five reps. And that was a huge PR. So I was definitely, I was definitely on the right path. But then six weeks out, I just started tearing. Part of it was like the change in the seasons because the meet was in July. And I just, I think this, I might've had allergies or something, something to affect my skin. Cause I was really starting to dry out in my hands, right. but even all over my body, I was just starting to flake. And I was like, why am I drying up everywhere? Yeah. This was weird. So I was really coming across. It was mainly the thumb here. I never really tear here. Most of the time it's usually just around the thumb. Yeah. So, and the thing about me is I don't, from for f three, four years, I never used straps. So I, I really learned how to do hook grip. You know, got really comfortable with hook grip. And I use straps now because, especially on deadlift bars, you can't uh, you can't do excess. Even if your hook grip's good, doing sets of seven, it just doesn't – there's no need to do that. But with straps, it's almost like – the heaviest strap pull I've ever done is 920, and I've done over 1,000 without straps. So it's just – my top sets are always without straps. Usually my top set varies one to three reps. Yeah. I usually do a top set one to three reps. And I have three back downs, which are more of more volume, and I do those with straps. But when my hands started tearing, I had to use straps all the time. And I don't know, I just – I've never really – I've tried figure eight straps. I mean, I've tried every kind of strap, but yeah. none of them – it's almost like I'm gripping the bar too much. Like when I wear straps, it's like I'm – I tend to want to flex my hand too much, which in turn makes me want to bend my elbows. And it right. just feels really weird. Like because I'm worried about the strap coming undone. Yeah. So with hook grip, I'm more relaxed in my hand. But with straps, it's like I'm like clenched. I subconsciously am clenching more. So a lot of my top sets just, you know, d didn't really move great or I failed them. And uh, my heaviest lift to prep, luckily two weeks out, I just in time, my hands started recovering. I pulled 1,003. That was my heaviest deadlift during the whole prep. I actually did it earlier in prep, but I wanted to do more, but that was kind of – it is what it was at that point. Yeah. But one – one thing I've learned even in past preps is like with deadlift, especially where I'm at, like I can't, and obviously it's no shit. You're not going to max out, but my, my plan was to open with, I wanted to chip my all time on the opener of 970. So I opened with 982 and then I knew I was, I was going to chip my 1025 on the second. So I went like 1031. And then from there, I didn't know what I was going to do. It was just going to be based off a of feel, but it's like, I did 70 pounds more at a meet than I did in training. And, uh, Usually it's four to five percent. I'd say I do more in a competition than I do in training, so I account for that because you can't, like I said, push a squat and deadlift and you get into a prep. You got to be smart. Like when I pulled the thousand, it was probably like an RP eight. So I was like, okay, this definitely wasn't that strenuous, but I'm not gonna go heavier because that's just gonna tax my CNS even further, you know. And that's a lot of the the great deadlifts of the past. I've noticed that too. A lot of a lot of deadlifters, mainly the conventional ones, they used to deadlift every two to three weeks because they they accounted for the CNS fatigue that much, you know. Yeah. And what what are you usually like after um what are you usually like after a competition or what were you, what were you like after after this competition? Do you usually take a little bit of time off or what's your what's your usual plan? Yeah, after I mean I'm pretty wrecked. Like you that's the thing is like, that's why I usually go for it in some way, because you're not, you're always going to feel that 
it's usually like an hour or two after the meet. Your CNS just yeah nose bump, nose dives, and then uh, I usually don't work out for seven to ten days. Then I'll slowly work back into it. Um, and it depends too, because uh, for instance, next year I have a meet in March, and then I'm gonna do the pro. I'm gonna do the pro again, and this time the pro is in late October. It's around Halloween weekend, and I mean I, I, I want to do the pro again because it was such a good meet in terms of. Uh, now I do want to go overseas in the future, compete at, in other places, but until I get out of the Marines, that's just not. Yeah. It's so hard to like put in leave, foreign leave in the military. You got to jump through hoops and stuff. And plus, it just wouldn't be ideal. But in the future, I'd love to compete overseas. But for but in America right now, I think the pro is the biggest in terms of. I mean, people were arguing the prize money compared to some other meets. It wasn't that great, but they put so much money into the venue. I mean, we had a. It was at kind of a. It, it used to be a movie theater. Then it got revamped into like a professional sports arena for like semi-pro wrestling and other things. So it just had perfect, you know, open open lights and stage and stuff. It was the most professional feeling meet I've ever done. Like we had we had a two thousand like a two thousand square foot room just for warming up. It was a separate room, and then you like go down and you're literally walking in a movie theater. So the aisles are, I mean, it was so cool. And then the live stream. I didn't see the live stream during the meet, but I'm, I felt like the live stream was pretty good. And just the environment, there was almost almost up to a thousand people there at one wow. time, which was really cool. I mean, I've never competed in a meet that big. So I think it's they're trying to make it make it more for the athletes, you know. And I mean, prize money does matter, but unless you're at the very top, let's be honest, like the top two or three Wilkes dots, whatever, they're gonna win all the money. But the rest of the people, you still want to give them a great experience, you know, especially a lot of these people. They're paying out of pocket and stuff. So I believe it's like it makes sense to want to make it. The production of a meet is important to me, too, you know, like bringing value to all the people there. I mean, the strobe lights and stuff is cool. But then I loved third deadlifts. We walked out from the red carpet from the back onto the platform. Just little touches like that. And then in each in the warm up room and in multiple places, they had huge monitors you know, showing the live stream, showing the flights and the orders. So no, you were never not in the dark. Like at a normal meet, it's like you're trying to figure out, oh, what flight are they on? Oh, or then seconds, thirds, like that's normally pretty hard to figure out. But at this meet, I mean, you you can look on your phone. You could go in two or three different rooms. And you'll see the lineup has it, has its ongoing. So it was just the most stress-free meet. And I knew a lot of people there, you know, because I've, I've been going to a few big meets now. So it, it was a great time. And I think – I definitely want to do that again. So. Oh, cool. Yeah, definitely. I think with that as well, you know, from a, a spectator's point of view, I know powerlifting isn't always sometimes um, compared to football or rugby or basketball, you know, as a, as a, as a, spe- as a, as a, as a spectacle. So having events like that gets a lot more buy-in for people watching it, which, you know, might then, you know, increase the prize money and, and, and those sorts of things. So yeah, as a, as a spectacle, you know, it's, it's good to, it's good to watch. Obviously, we've, obviously you've touched on in a bit of an off season now and, you know, competitions next year. What are kind of, have you set your own goals for, for, for next year or some targets? What are kind of, what can we expect to see? Um, I mean, the one thing I definitely want to, I want to break my first all time total. Cause that's something, I mean, since like 2018, it was pretty. I'm sorry, there's some freaking gnats around here. Oh. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, Marine Barracks, man, they're not the not the cleanest places. Um, <laughs> but uh, 
Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously, I still want to push the deadlift and re, re. I mean, the people keep asking 500, and my thing is like, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about it, but I'm not. I'm not gonna like. I'm just gonna treat these meat preps the same and just try to slowly build better, get a few PRs here and there, and see where it goes. Because in my opinion, I mean, I've seen this in the sport for years where I think there's a science actually. It's like concrete numbers, like 100, 200, 300, 400. It's like more of a mental block, right? Like 499 is not a big deal, but 500 is, oh my God, this is yeah. monumentous, you know? So I'm not trying to let the whole 500 thing. Like I'm just going to get better. And I think last year, I mean, so that tells me, okay, I don't need to like, I don't need to go, go above and beyond of what I'm doing. I just need to keep what I'm doing. I have a pretty good formula with how I'm training and improving on deads. So, and I'm going to compete twice this year. So if it's there in March, maybe, if not, hopefully do it at the pro, but uh, I'm confident I will because my, especially the conventional work, I really feel it's going to pay dividends, you know, as I progress to this next prep, but break in the first total would be cool because that's something I never thought I'd do. And, you know, and then people are still going to say, oh, well, his deadlift is still like, I don't know, 60, whatever percent. I don't, but a total is a total, right? It doesn't, the sum of three parts is the same, regardless if it's, yeah. you know, your, your squats, this, your bench, this, your deadlift, this, like some people are more even, some people are really good squat and deadlift and their bench is in the middle, you know? So, but yeah, that would be awesome. I mean, I'll be more excited for that than deadlift, honestly, because that would be a way bigger deal to me. Cause I want to start competing for totals at big meets, you know, and that's, I just want to set the tone and do that. That'd be really cool. Yeah, definitely. And it'll be, it'll be exciting. Yeah. To see that, yeah. Sorry, go on. Yeah. I mean, as for numbers, I mean, my next meet probably squat like 782, 780. This all depends. Like I said, as the prep progresses and then 474 ish. And then, like I said, on deads, it's, it's all going to be about, Whatever my heaviest deadlift is, it'll probably be within 20 to 30 pounds of my opener. That's normally my, like, it's a weird way to do it. But since I don't, since I kind of hold back in training, I don't recommend that to most people. But it's because since I know through trial and error, I pull 4 to 5% more than me just because the adrenaline, the fight or flight, and, you know, coming in with my CS fresh. It's like if I, if my heaviest is 1,020 during prep, I'll probably open with, like, 990 a thousand, et cetera. So that's kind of the benchmark of what I'm expecting to do. Like I said, you know, for all I know, it could be a crazier prep or could be better. Yeah. We'll just, we'll just wait and see. I'm going to start posting more, but it's like, I'm deep in the off season and I'm doing the same similar weights for, you know, high reps. And it's just like, and people tell me, Oh, post it. I want to see it. But then it, not that I care about the views, but I'm like, okay, no one cares if I'm doing, 330 for set to eight on bench you know it's just not like that appealing <laughs> yeah no I think I think it goes kind of full circle to what we spoke about at the start you know in terms of having that um strategy you know what works for you and it obviously is working because you know you're having really good you know competitions and still progressing from there so yeah I think it'll be be, be exciting to see um Thanks a lot, Danny, for taking the time to, to jump on. Really, really enjoyed chatting with you today. I was looking forward um, to this podcast when, when we set it up. The last question that I like to ask, though, from, from everything that we've chatted about there in terms of recovery, in terms of training and meat prep, 
for everyone listening, what would be your take-home points or words of wisdom? Um, man, you got some good questions. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> not that I wasn't prepared, but it's definitely uh, very thought-provoking because I could go one of a multitude of ways with this. I would say probably the most important thing is knowing, getting to the point where you can figure out, like I kind of stated previously earlier, like, if you're not feeling the best, just like don't go completely off the gas, but because you're only as good as what you can recover from, right? So you could, you're sleeping, all this could be on point, but if you're always overshooting and training, that's also why I believe in more of a. So this is how I see it. Normally, my top set's normally around an R. I don't know, I hate to use RP, but RP like six to seven, because I know if I go above RP eight, that's a lot, whether it's a single or a rep set, that's a lot of. That's a lot of CNS fatigue to recover from. So I always try, I always try to stay in that like uh, pocket, if you will, like exertion of like six to seven RP, or I guess like having a few reps in the tank, because I've learned, like I said, you, you could have a great workout and overshoot it, but then it, for two weeks, if you're recovering from what you did that day, that, that in my opinion, you want to keep building on each week. So knowing, knowing your body and knowing when to like, like I said, depending on the day, if you're fatigued, if things aren't going to move the way they should, just don't. If you got to drop 50 pounds, but you're still, like I said, maintaining that RPE. That, to me, is a better deal than if you still try to do the weight anyway, completely tax yourself, and then the next three to five days, it's going to affect your other workouts. So I'd say just have consistency in your training in terms of, like, monitoring your uh, intensity. Yeah. Yeah. That's – but – like I said, though, the CPAP and all the other stuff, that stuff is really crucial. I mean, because when you look at it with powerlifters, the best ones are normally the ones who stay the healthy the longest, or they're at least healthy enough. You're, like I said, you're going to tweak muscles here and there because when you're pushing your body to the limit. But that's one thing I've learned is, like, even if I have two bad workouts, as long as I'm still healthy and then I recover, that's better than if I just don't feel great and then I end up tweaking something and then it's four to six weeks of, like, you're in limbo, not really doing anything, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think that was a, a really good point to finish on because I think people, or there can be a, a mindset that they're just thinking about that that meat that's coming up rather than thinking that, that strength one, is, Yeah, that one workout. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, strength is, is long-term. You know, you can still get stronger rather than always stopping and starting if you get an injury. So, no, I thought that was a that was a really good um, uh, take-home point there. Um for anyone listening who might have any questions about what we've chatted about, see the, the training footage that you put out there, where can people um, reach you or, or find the content that you put out there? Yeah, so on Instagram, I, I don't look at it that often, but I think my, my Instagram handle is Danny, D Dan Griggs, Dan underscore Griggs. It yeah. used to be something else, but then a year ago I changed it because someone told me it sounded catchier and I it, it helped me with traction. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know much about the algorithm to be honest. So Dan underscore Griggs for Instagram, and then on YouTube, I'm, I keep hinting at this, but it's just tough because of my work and stuff. But I want to start, especially for this prep, making a video every week or two, like documenting training, and I'll talk about, I guess, philosophy and what I'm, what I'm thinking about. So on it, so on YouTube, I think my YouTube is uh. Just type in Danny Grigsby and it'll come up as one of the first things. But YouTube should be in the works very soon. Luckily, I have 
a videographer who's pretty local now who could help me with editing. Because I can do the raw footage, but it's like knowing how to splice it together and kind of present it better. Because I can just put raw footage on there, but it's just not gonna, uh, it's not gonna flow very well, you know. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, hopefully YouTube. I'll start posting on YouTube because that's if any, it's more than anything. It's like, regardless if I ever blow up, and you know, you can monetize it, which is great. But then, 10, 20 years ago, I can. 10, 20 years from now, I can look back and see, oh, this was how I, this is how I felt during this time, you know, getting to see kind of like a training log and it's documented, you know, online. So. Yeah, definitely. That'll be, that'll be cool. Um, yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks a lot, Danny, for, for taking the time to jump on. Like I say, I really appreciate you, you, you taking the time um, and really, really enjoyed chatting with me today. So um, thanks again. Thanks to everyone listening and I will see you all next week. <laughs>